Well, good morning. Um, it's good to see all of you. My name is Jacob Yarbrough, and I serve here as one of the elders. You know, I count it as a privilege and an honor to read God's Word publicly. And this morning we'll be reading from Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 6. And if you would like to join me as I read, I invite you to do so. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 16 through Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil, every evildoer will be chaff. And the, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Good morning, friends. Uh, Can I give you also, you know, the mission of Calvary Bible Church is to make biblical followers of Christ. Part of being a, a, a biblical follower of Christ is understanding what you believe. Track with me? So what we do every January, we do Systematic Theology Month. So in years past, we did Who is God? And then I think last year we did What is the Bible? This January, we're doing What are Angels? So we're studying angelology. So we'll be doing one week on angels, one week on demons, and one week on spiritual warfare. So that's starting in the month of January. I just want to give you an FYI. And as has already been shared this morning, today we're finishing up our series in the book of Malachi, specifically the Minor Prophets. This, this fall, if you've been here uh, during the fall semester, we've spent about nine or ten weeks going through the Minor Prophets, more than nine or ten weeks, probably closer to thirteen. Anyways, uh, we spent two weeks going through the book of Obadiah, we spent four weeks going through the book of Haggai, and we spent, I think it's the seventh week, going through the book of Malachi. And today we finish it out. If you have your notes... Malachi, in a word, is genuine. Genuine. And today we look at our genuine hope for tomorrow. We look at our genuine hope. Let me just ask you the question. Let's just start off this morning, and you can respond if you wish, or I'll just stare awkwardly at you. Um, Either way, it's cool. Uh, What is something you have to look forward to? What's something that is imminent, something in the near future that you're looking forward to? What's that? Retirement. Yes, yes. Yes, what else? <laughs> the rapture. Good. Yep. What are, what are some other things you have to look forward to? 
Grandchildren. Yep. What else? Vacation. Anybody else going on vacation anytime soon? Traveling, seeing grandkids and children and all that stuff. What are some other things that you have to look forward to? Yeah. It goes by too fast, man. How does having something to hope for affect your life today? How does something hoping you hope for tomorrow affect your life today? If you have a, a vacation, if you have a goal, if you have something in your future that you're excited about, what does it do? It energizes you. It pushes you to get out of bed. It allows you to overlook current circumstances for this vacation you know that's going to give you life and rest? Better question is this. As a Christian, what do we have to look forward to? What is something as a Christian we have to look forward to both here and there? But how does the future, how does the hope for tomorrow affect your life today? How does the hope for tomorrow affect your life today? That's the question that we see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 and 4, 1 through 6. Is that God, at the very last piece of the book of Malachi, gives the nation of Israel something to look forward to, something to hope for, and then he tells them exactly what he wants to do in lieu of the hope of tomorrow. So if you have your Bible, go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. That's where we're going to begin. Today, our passage breaks down into two main parts. It all centers on genuine hope, but genuine hope for here, and also, that's in chapter 3, and genuine hope for there in heaven in chapters 4, 1 through 6. And one of the things I love about this passage, it contains my favorite verse in the book of Malachi, is that it not only describes the day of the Lord, but it describes heaven. The new heaven and new earth. So if you have your text, today we're going to go from Malachi 3.16 through the end of the book. We're going to finish it off. This is the last message given to the nation of Israel before the 400 years of silence, before John the Baptist appears and Jesus appears on the scene, which is the Christmas season as a whole. But before we jump too far in, let us kind of quickly set the stage for our discussion this morning. What is the theme of every minor prophet? Really? What is the theme of the whole Old Testament? Is what? That covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That covenant blessing, the blessing of God, requires that the nation of Israel be faithful to the covenant of God and be faithful to obeying the law. And the book of Malachi, in a word, is the word genuine. And we see the book of Malachi is organized into six different disputes. Six different arguments between the nation of Israel and between God. And it all centers on a genuine relationship with God. It all centers on that core relationship between Israel and God. And dispute number one begins, as we saw in chapter one, the dispute number one is over the genuine nature of God's love. Does God really love Israel? Let me just ask the question, how many of you have ever asked that question? Does God really love me? Does God even care? Does God notice that I see the promises of the Bible, I see that according to the scripture, his love is inescapable. All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. We, we know it factually to be true, but on an emotive level, on a spiritual level, we all struggle with time to time. The question, does God really, really love me? That's what he proves in chapter 1. Dispute number 2 is over the nature of Israel's genuine worship. 
And then dispute number three is over the issue of genuine marriages. Then dispute number four is over the issue of genuine trusting God in the midst of the injustice and unfairness of life. And the dispute five and six, what we talked about last week, is over the nature of their tithes and offerings and over the nature of their words. Okay, so let me just take a time out for just a second. I want you to imagine that you are living in the city of Jerusalem in 450 B.C. And you get this prophecy from the prophet Malachi. And in in a sense, it's all of the things that you are doing badly as a nation. How would you be feeling? I mean, if I were a Jew living in 450 B.C., I would be feeling a little bit discouraged, downtrodden, despair. Why? Because in a sense, it would be like an overbearing father pointing out all of the mistakes that you have made. But what I love about the book of Malachi is that God finds the nation of Israel there. He doesn't just leave them in the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't just pick on them, in a sense, of all the things that they are doing to not be faithful to the covenant of God. But he meets them there in that darkened state, in the state of being discouraged and downtrodden. And he gives them genuine hope for here and for eternal life. So, if you notice your text, notice with me, verses 3, 16 through 4, 1, really deals with... A present hope, but also the day of the Lord that is to come. And if you notice verse 16, who is he talking to? So keep in mind, if you're the nation of Israel as a whole, it would be very discouraging by the end of Malachi, because God, in a sense, just seems to be pointing out all of your inadequacies like, like, like an overbearing father. But if I were actually one of the few Jewish people in the 450 B.C. that was actually faithful to the covenant, it would be really... Uh, discouraging because you're like wait a second lord um i'm going down with the ship according to malachi 3 9 that god is going to punish the whole nation and if you're one of the few that's in the nation saying hey god i've actually been faithful i've sacrificed my best i've honored my marriage all this stuff you would be feeling a little bit alone but then notice what he says in verse 16 Then those who feared the Lord, those who are righteous, those who are believers today in Christ Jesus, those who are following the Lord, notice what it says, spoke to one another, and the Lord, I love this word, gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Notice who is he talking to. He's talking to a specific group of people within the nation of Israel. That there are actually people in the nation that are living a righteous life. Then those who feared the Lord, I love this next word, spoke to one another. What is he saying there? That yes, you in the nation of Israel, that there are some among you. Reminds me of Genesis 18 and Abraham and the, the city of Sodom. That you may feel alone, there's not a lot righteous out there, but you aren't alone. That God will gather you together. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention. And heard it, and Book of Remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. What's the hope that he gives them, number one, in verse 16, to those who actually fear the Lord, to those who are trying to follow God, to those who are living a righteous life? What's his first encouragement? That 
they're not alone. That there are other people that you don't know out there. That there is a faithful remnant in the nation of Israel that will that I will gather together and you won't, in a sense, go down with the ship. He, sp- he spoke to one another, to those who feared the Lord. Let me just ask a question. Um, I think a lot of times in life, when, you're, when you actually are sincere and you want to live a godly life and you care about your sin, you care about the your health of your spiritual life, you go to church, you're faithful to serve, it's oftentimes easy to feel alone. That, that, that no one else really cares, that no one else is really faithful. I feel so different. But look around you. Most people in this room are the faithful remnant. Most people in this room fear the Lord. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. He, they gathered together and I love this word, gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who esteemed his name. Encouragement number one is that the righteous are not alone, that there are other people that are fearing the Lord, that offering their best, that honor the Lord with their marriage, that, you know, aren't worried about, that are trusting the Lord. Encouragement number one, they're not alone. Encouragement number two is that God notices, hears, and remembers those who fear him. They are seen, they are heard, and they are remembered. But the faithful remnant of Israel in 450 B.C., there's only a few of them, that they will be spared of judgment. And then verse 17, notice what he does. They will be mine, says the Lord, on the day. Notice that phrase. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So, encouragement number one to the nation of Israel, to these people who probably feel like they're alone, that they're offering the Lord their best, they're actually living a righteous life. They are wondering if they're going down with the ship. Number one, encouragement, they're not alone. Number two is that God notices, God sees, God remembers, their name is in the book of remembrance. It's not that God forgets who is faithful to him, right? You know, he doesn't need a book. It's just an illustration in a sense. Um, We can talk about that more. There's a lot of debate among scholars in this particular regard. But then also he keeps them. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That God will keep them safe. That they will not go through the judgment of the world and the nation of Israel and those who do not fear the Lord um, what does that remind you of, in a sense? It reminds me of a Christian, that we will be gods, that we're the people of God, uh, that he will spare us, that he calls us special, his own son, that we see in Romans chapter 8. And then notice verse 18, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The question I have is, when does all this happen? You know, there is a faithful remnant in the nation of Israel, and he says that he will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. When does all this happen? Verse 17. We'll talk more about this in verse 1. On the day I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own. And so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God, that this event occurs during the day of the Lord. We've talked about that extensively in the Minor Prophets, so I'm not going to revisit it in in its entirety here. But I don't take the day of the Lord to be a 24-hour period. I take it to be a period of judgment upon the world, upon the wicked. I take it to be during the tribulation period and during the millennial kingdom that that's 
thousand seven year period is called the day of the Lord. It's a period of judgment and it's a period of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. What's the point? You know, if you are a righteous person living in 450 B.C. and you have been told to this point that Israel is going down and that God is going to punish them, and then all of a sudden God says that there is a faithful remnant amongst you, that you will be spared, why is he saying that? What's the idea? What is the point that he's getting across to the Jewish faithful remnant in the 5th century B.C.? I think it's this is that it's worth it. Because think about it. If they're going to go down with the ship, if they're going down with the Titanic, they're thinking in the back of their mind, why does it even matter then that I sacrifice to the Lord? Why does it even matter? I think what God is saying in a subtle remark to the faithful, righteous who fear the Lord, that it's worth it to stay the course. Don't give up. That you will be spared and that you will be preserved from... Um, it is worth it. Uh, I think every single Christian in life today, at one point or another, wonders that, is it really worth it? Is it worth following God? Because, let's just be honest, the Christian life is hard. Can I get an amen? Let me do that again. The Christian life is hard. It's, it's okay. Uh, the Christian life is hard. Thank you. It's easy to live like the world, man. It's, it's easy. And the world will tell you it's rewarding and it's fun and it gives life. And, and we as Christians, it's hard to have quiet times. It's hard to live a righteous life. It's hard to abide by the scripture and to live according to it. But friends, listen to me. Uh, I, and I've said this recently. Maybe I'm about to go through a midlife crisis, but I'm hit, almost hitting 40. And the older I get, the more I realize that living a righteous life is worth it. It's the life of least pain, least conflict, most earthly and spiritual blessing. He's telling the faithful remnant in the nation of Israel. He's telling this, these people, the people that think they're going down with the ship, that to stay steady, that it's worth following the Lord. It's worth fearing God. It's worth abiding by his commandments. Friends, listen to me. If you are truly a follower of Christ today, if you are doing everything in your power, maybe not in your power, but according to the spirit, you're walking as you are everything in your power. It is worth it to follow the Lord. You may not feel it. Uh, the world might not tell you. It's worth being faithful to your spouse. It's worth being faithful to the Lord. It's worth having a genuine relationship with Him. It's worth trusting Him. It's worth giving Him your best. So we have genuine hope here that it's worth it. That's the whole idea. Why is it worth it? Because they will be remembered that God notices, sees, hears, and sets them apart. But the question I have is this. How does hope affect me today? How does a future hope, knowing that God will be faithful, how does it affect me here today? 
God talks to the faithful remnant, those Jews in the nation of Israel in the 5th century B.C. that are righteous, that are fearing the Lord, that they're not alone, that God notices. But then he turns his attention in verse 1 of chapter 4. He then unpacks the great day of the Lord, a period of judgment upon the world. But especially in verse 2, he gives us a picture of heaven. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. He gives us genuine hope of there. The day of the Lord, verse 16 through 18, in the culmination is in verse 1. For behold. Uh, why does he say that? He's bringing attention to what he's about to tell them. He's speaking to the whole nation of Israel now. He was speaking to faithful remnant at the end of thir- chapter 3. He's speaking to all of them, the wicked and the righteous. For behold, the day is coming. He's grabbing their attention. The day is coming. In the original language, the word, this little phrase, the day, in Hebrew has the definite article. So it's not just a day, but it is the day, which is why I believe he's talking about the day of the Lord. Specifically here, he's talking about the very end of the day of the Lord, the great white throne of judgment. The day is coming. Burning like a furnace. Why does he say that? It's ready to come. It's burning. It's ready. That the Lord's return to the day of the Lord, the tribulation period that is to come, that it is imminent. He's ready to go. Right? It is about to occur. So those in the nation of Israel to the righteous, they're woo, excited. Right? But then the wicked, they're like, oh, oh, it's coming. They're a little bit nervous. The day is coming, burning like a furnace. The day of the Lord, his arrival, the rapture, the tribulation period is not immediate, it's imminent. I had a preacher when I was in Dallas, Texas, it was an older gentleman, he was up on stage, and he gave that answer. He says, the day of the Lord may not be immediate, but it is imminent. And ever since he said that, I was like, put it in my brain. It can happen at any moment in time. And we should live accordingly. Um, But, you know, it's been... 2,000 years. You know, it'd be easier for us to make, okay, okay, Lord, um, you know, you say it's imminent, okay, but, but it, it's been 2,000 2, years. It doesn't seem very imminent to me, but God is outside of the boundaries of time. He is not bound by the constraint of time. That God has a different perspective on time. We think of 2,000 years as a long period of time, but to God, it's what? Only Two days. The furnace of the day of the Lord, his return and the judgment has come, is burning like a furnace. This is what it says in Second Peter chapter 3. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We have genuine hope here, knowing that it's worth it. That God notices, he sees, he hears, he remembers. And we have genuine hope there because his return is imminent. Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. It's a coming on, all right? And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff. The image I have here is a campfire, how a campfire lasts for a little while and burns out, but it's boiling. The image I have here is my seven-year-old who takes leaves and throws it on the fire. And it just burns up and is gone like chaff. And the day that is coming 
will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, what? That the day of the Lord, the great white throne of judgment, will come, it will be imminent, and it will be swift, and it will set the wicked apart, and it will reward the righteous. Chapter 3, 16 through 18, or actually, chapter 3, 16 through 4, 1 is the day of the Lord. Thousand seven year period of time culminating in verse 1 with the great white throne of judgment and the end of the old earth and old heavens. What I see in verse 2 is the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, I think we have this um, misgiving of heaven. I'll just share a story. I had a, um, I had a, I had a philosophy professor at UAH, and uh, he was an atheist. And I think one of the reasons why he was an atheist is because of his mother's description of heaven. Okay? His, he, as a little boy, his mother was a Catholic, I believe, and his, his mother was a faithful, devout Catholic, and him as a young boy went up to his mother and asked, what's heaven going to be like? And she said, it's going to be like church service, but for eternity. I think he went, I'm out, okay? I'm good. Uh, I, I think we have this image of heaven that will be like cupids and we'll be soaring through clouds and it'll be boring and we'll just sing songs to God. But I think worshiping the Lord is definitely part of it, seen in the book of Revelation. But I think there's something more to it. What will heaven be like? It's a great verse, man. But for you who fear my name, for the righteous, those who believe in Jesus Christ, how were people saved in the Old Testament? That's a good question. They weren't saved by the law. They weren't saved by good works, but by faith on credit for the Messiah that is to come to pay for the sins of the world. Right? What does it say in Genesis 15, 6? And Abraham, what, believed in God and was credited to him as righteousness, that people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, and people in the New Testament were saved by faith, and the people today are saved by faith. Amen? It hasn't changed in 6,000 years. For you who fear my name, those Jews living in the 5th century, those here today who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. A lot of people think Son, S-U-N, it is S-U-N in the Hebrew, but a lot of people believe that that is S-O-N. S-O-N. It is actually in all caps in a lot of translations. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing and its wings. That's a picture, in my opinion, of the new heaven and new earth. It brings, number one, healing. It brings healing. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And number two, it will bring freedom. Notice what it says, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Heaven is a time of worship, a time of fellowship with God. Yes, that is all true. Um, And it's also a period of healing. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Healing from what? Our physical ailments, our emotional ailments, the spiritual darkness of this world. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from, we wouldn't know what this means, but from this last little phrase, from the stall. That calf has freedom. Freedom from what? 
What does heaven bring us? Not only brings us healing, but it brings us freedom from three different things. Number one, the flesh. Right? The flesh. That we no longer have this body of sin. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? We will no longer struggle with our fleshly urges. Listen. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're sincere in your faith, and you care about following him, and you care about living a holy and righteous life, what is one of the most frustrating things? This thing. Bodily urges. Temptation. The limitations of it. We will have healing for the son of righteousness and that we will have freedom from the flesh. We have freedom from the world. The current world is darkened by sin for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That the world we live in is not we are not only bound by our flesh, but that the world we live in is darkened by sin and by the enemy. And it's a frustrating place to live. Amen. I mean, full of conflict and strife, full of temptations of the world that the grass is greener on the other side, full of temptations that we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not handsome enough, we don't make enough. Those are all pressures, not from the flesh, but from the pressures of the world that we face every single day. We have freedom from the flesh, we have freedom from the world, we have freedom from the enemy. No longer when we are in the new heavens and new earth. Go read the end of the book of Revelation. Are we tempted by the enemy? No longer does he have any warfare amongst us, but that we have complete and total freedom from all of that, and we will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. I, 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 all illustrations to a degree are limited, and if you have an issue with what I'm about to share, that's cool. We can hug afterwards, okay, and I'll just hug you, okay. But I just want you to picture like the best moment in your life. The best moment of your life. It could be when you got married. It could be when you had a child that was brought into this world. It could be a long hike or a long adventure that you went on. The image I have is that euphoria feeling that we feel. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? That, 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 that sense of joy. The sense of carelessness about the world and its judgments. That moment of pure, total joy. That's what I picture happening here in verse 2. It's this euphoric state for eternity. Not for a moment in time. Not for that 30 seconds when your child was born into this world. But for eternity, friends. I love that verse. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That uh, genuine hope for their heaven that we will have healing and freedom. And you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes underneath your soles of your feet. I believe that's going back to verse 1. It's talking about the chaff. That the judgment of the Lord is done. A fire will come. They will be judged. The righteous will be separated. The faithful remnant will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet. On the day, again, a reference to the day of the Lord, which I am preparing, which is imminent, says the Lord of hosts. Um, the question I have is, how does having a future hope affect me today? 
It reminds me it's worth it. I remember that God notices me, that God cares, that the hope of the new heaven and new earth brings freedom, brings healing, okay? But how does it affect my life today? How does having a future hope affect me today? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statute and ordinance which I have commanded him in Horeb and all of Israel. What is he saying? It is worth it here and there. So what happens? Keep the faith. Keep being obedient. Keep fearing the Lord. Keep a righteous life. How does a future hope for tomorrow affect me today? It reminds me to keep on going. To stay faithful. To not grow discouraged and quit. To keep on obeying the scripture. To keep on walking according to the spirit. To keep on living for him. To keep on being a light to the world and the salt of the earth. To keep on keeping on. Don't quit. Because one day, it'll all be worth it. That's what he's saying. Keep on keeping on. Remember the law. You faithful people who fear the Lord, keep Fearing the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinance which I have commanded him in Horeb in all of Israel. So this is given to the faithful remnant. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are righteous. Who care about living a righteous life. Don't give up. Keep on going. Because we have a future hope in store for us. Keep on going. But it doesn't end here. It would be seemingly fitting that Malachi would end in verse 4, but he doesn't. He continues on to verse 5. Notice what he says. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Let me take a pause real quick for just a second. I'm going to point out two different things here. He's going to send Elijah the prophet. Have you ever wondered why Peter in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 builds a tabernacle? Ever wonder that? He sees who? I believe he sees Moses, and he sees Elijah. And then he says, let's build them a tabernacle. Let's build them a tent to stay in. Why? Peter thinks that the day of the Lord is imminent, that the kingdom of God is coming on earth. That's, we fault him for shoving his foot in his mouth, but he actually knows his Bible. Okay? He thinks that the day of the Lord is coming. Elijah the prophet before the great day and terrible day of the Lord, also in Jewish cultures, Starting after this time period, the Passover feast, Jewish people would leave an empty chair around the Passover table for Elijah to remind them of the imminent return of God. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Uh, Most scholars believe that Elijah... In Malachi chapter 4 is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that those two witnesses will result in people repenting, restoring the hearts of their fathers to their children and preserve from judgment the great day of the Lord. Um, notice how the Old Testament ends. This is the last word spoken for 400 years to the nation of Israel. And the last word in Hebrew is that word. It is a curse. Think about how the Old Testament begins. In the beginning, and then it ends with a curse, with a word curse. But let, let's, let's do something really quick, guys. Let's not take that one word out of context. Because it would be easy for us at the end of the book of Malachi to think that God is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. He's not. 
The end of the book of Malachi is a, is a message of hope. That yes, God will punish the wicked, but he will also reward the righteous. If you are faithful to the Lord, if you're serving him, if you want to know, if, if you're trying to live for him, then just remember it's worth it. Both here and there. That there is imminent. His return is imminent. In heaven, you will be healed. And you will have freedom like a calf from a stall. The ending of the Old Testament is a message of hope. It closes with a great hope that although the sun has gone down and is very dark, that there is coming a new day. That we are living now in the night of sin and the world is dark. It seems that we are at the darkest moment today, but there is coming a day when the sun of righteousness will rise and spiritual light will break upon this little planet. The ending of the Old Testament is a message of hope. Hope that people who serve God, that God will notice, that God sees, that God hears, that God will remember, that God will keep you, and that there is a hope there that the new heaven and new earth provides healing in its wings, and provides freedom from sin, freedom from the world, freedom from the flesh, and freedom from the enemy. That's the message of the book of Malachi. That is the closing message. The question I, this is the point I want to end with us today. The book of Malachi ends with a message on genuine hope. And the message to the faithful remnant in chapter 3 is that it's worth it. Keep on, keep it on. Don't quit. I know I said in chapter 3, verse 9, that the whole nation of Israel is on the Titanic but hang in there. It's worth it both here, there's a faithful community around you, you spoke to one another, and there. So keep the faith. Keep on keeping on. Verse 4, and look for Elijah. Look for the end that is to come. The question I'm going to end with us today is this. So what? Uh, how do we apply it to our life? I have um, like a book up here for application. Okay? Um, I, I'm just going to cut to the chase. I'm just going to lay it on us, okay? Um, what is the application of this passage? Keep on going. Keep on going. Don't quit. Don't lay down. Don't let the discouragement of the world bind your feet and bind your spirit. Don't let sin weigh you down. Don't let the world convince you that your identity is in the stuff that you own or in the position that you achieve but that the life that is truly worth it is a life that is obedient to God, friends. A life that remembers the law of God. A life that abides by the Scripture. I'm not sure who this application for is today. I thought about this last night. I thought about it this morning. I said, you know what? What do I really want people to walk away with? I want you to walk away with this. Keep on going. Keep on going. Keep going. Don't quit. The Christian life is worth it. It ain't easy. Good Southern Southern talk right there. It ain't easy. But it's worth it. The best life you could possibly live is according to what God has instructed us in his word. I'm not sure where you are spiritually today. I don't know if that message rings true. Maybe that you are surrounded in your life by circumstances you can't understand and you feel like your life is shattered on the rocks. 
Maybe you have physical ailments. Maybe you have emotional turmoil. Maybe you're struggling with different spiritual questions you have about God or his existence or the value of the Christian life. I don't know what you have going on in your life. I don't. But my memo to you is that you keep on going. Keep on chasing the Lord. His, his way is worth it. Don't let the world convince you to quit. I've known so many Christians that walk away, that just stop living for the Lord. And they fail to see the fruit of a life that lives for Him. They quit 100 feet from the finish line. I mean, don't stop. You know, it's right there. Yeah, it's hard. A marathon is hard. Don't quit. At 26 miles, run the 26.2 miles. Keep on. Go. That's the message of the book of Malachi at the end. To remember the law. Keep it. Live a righteous life. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know him, if you've never had a relationship with him, if you don't know where you would go when you pass away from this earth, if you're not sure of your relationship with him, then Christ Jesus, in the Christmas season, he's come and he's died on the cross to pay for your sin in full. If you've never trusted in Christ Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to him, believe in Christ, receive him into your life. And if you have any questions about what it means to believe in Jesus, if you have any questions of what it means to live for him, I would encourage you to see me, see the elders, uh, see any of the church leaders, and we would love to guide you in that conversation. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the faithful remnant that are here. For those that truly desire to follow you, the, the desire to serve you, the desire to live holy lives. Um, Lord, at, at, at different seasons of our life, we can be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We can be facing a variety of difficulties and temptations and struggles. And Lord, I just pray that we would remember that it's all worth it. That, that you will come and your imminent judgment and presence on earth will come in a blink of an eye and that when you come and after the day of judgment that we will experience healing and we will experience freedom. That is a hope that we should hang on to and that we should remind ourselves. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you just for the faithfulness to you. I thank you for uh, just a friendship to me. I appreciate each and every one of them. And Lord, I just lift up the rest of the service today in Jesus' name. Amen.